HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Support for this episode comes from Team Pennsylvania, hosting the Pennsylvania Hemp Summit, two events in 2022 offering a place for farmers, professionals, investors, and policymakers to learn and connect. Details at pahempsummit.com. World Central Kitchen is serving thousands of fresh meals to Ukrainian families fleeing home, as well as people remaining in the country. This week on Let's Talk About Food, host Louisa Kasdan spoke with Henry Patterson about his upcoming relief trip. So you're going to Poland, and I think you told me you're going to be there for at least two weeks. I'm going to Poland to help feed Ukrainian refugees. With Jose Andreas's World Central Kitchen, I decided that's what I wanted to do for my 70th birthday. I leave in just a few days. We all see that what the Russians are doing is contemptible. As a food person, We all love to help. It's in our DNA. And here are people who really need our help. So if you want to help the Ukrainian refugees, either with money or even your hands and heart, find hashtag Chefs for Ukraine and World Central Kitchen. We have to do something. We can help. Remember hashtag Chefs for Ukraine. They're illegal in New York City. Yes. Goats, pigs. These things are illegal. I was just looking at the New York City list. Yeah. Um, because it's like, it literally includes like rhinoceros and <laughs> like tarantulas. And like, it's like, it's not like, like near the bottom, it's like farm animals. It's like one of the, like, the lowest bullets. <laughs> like after Trump. After like Trump. Yeah. After like Trump. Gorilla. <laughs> it's like. There's a quick mention of hog riots in Gotham where they, um, they just talk about the fact that there were these, these people who rioted over their hogs being collected off the streets of New York um, in the 1820s and 1830s. Um, random years, they started to enforce this law and then they um, would stop enforcing it. And I just thought it was so bizarre to think about hogs running free on the streets of New York. Um, I was living in New York at the time that I read the book and um, I just, it, it, was, it just captivated me. You're listening to Season 2 of Fields, the podcast, with Melissa Metric, Wythe Marshall, and Allie Whist. On Fields, we're bringing you the stories of people who are working in the world of urban agriculture. For money, for fun, for art, for justice, to feed the hungry, 
to green the city, or to uncover its history. In each episode of Fields, we'll delve into one kind of food that's grown in cities, one technology used to grow food, or one project that teaches us something about our relationship to farming and urban environments. Moreover, we'll investigate all the whys behind getting up in the morning and working as a farmer today. You don't need to be a farmer to enjoy this podcast, or even a foodie. We're going to tell fascinating stories and break down the realities and possible futures of urban farming to their elements, examining each in turn. Thank you so much for listening. In this episode of Fields, we'll be talking about raising farm animals in New York City. We'll start out by speaking to historian Catherine McNoor, who wrote the book Taming Manhattan, and listen to how she tells the story about the history of raising animals in NYC and why it became illegal specifically to raise hooved animals in the city. We'll also speak to farmer Heidi Wolliver from Queens County Farm Museum about why people would want to raise animals in an urban area today. A quick note, we recorded the interview pre-pandemic, so we will give you an update of Heidi at the end. Here's Catherine McNair. Hi, I'm Catherine McNair. I'm a professor of history at Portland State University, and I'm the author of Taming Manhattan. In the 1820s and 1830s, there were a lot of pigs on the streets of New York. There's something, the estimates were that there were about 20,000 pigs. Most of the people who owned hogs were um, working class or, or poor um, of all races, but they were t- typically um, immigrants or African-Americans or um, uh, just poor native-born white uh, New Yorkers. Um, and they, um, they kept pigs as a way to make ends meet. And so when there were these riots, when the city tried to rein in the number of loose hogs on the streets, um, it was often African-American women um, or white women who were leading the charge with these riots and attacking the hog collectors um, as they were trying to preserve their their home economy um, in many ways. So this is pretty serious. A lot of people raised pigs because they weren't making enough financially to survive which we will find in other cases why a lot of people practice urban agriculture. So why did raising pigs in Manhattan start becoming illegal? There was a lot written about the indecency of witnessing hogs on the streets, that children would see hogs copulating and that this was just, it was just indecent um, in general, or that kids would ride hogs. Um, they would find hogs on the street, take a ride down the street and then get attacked by a sow. And so there's just like dangers to women and children and the indecency of these animals. Um, and just like, you're gonna get filthy um, walking down the street. Hogs also, they tore up, they would, they would root um, uh, and this, in the cobblestones for things and tear up the pavements and scare horses and all these other issues. So they, they were just like a, a bad presence for most people who wanted a well-regulated um, city that could compete with Philadelphia or Boston or even let alone London or Paris. Like it, it was just how could New York come off as a financial capital or um, anything else if there were these unruly pigs on the streets. That seems like a very different Manhattan than what we know of today. But let's go a little bit deeper and see who was actually trying to make farm animals illegal and why. There was kind of a gentrification issue um, going on, and this was definitely divided by class. So it was mostly poor New Yorkers who owned the pigs, but um, and wealthier New Yorkers who would be moving into a neighborhood and then find themselves having pigs kind of napping at their their stoop in the, um, at night, and they just didn't want to like butt up against them every day on the streets. The pig became tied in with 
poverty because it was the people who owned it were poor. Um, but it was in neighborhoods where there were also the rich kind of side by side with the poor. And so, um, and so it often, that, that probably is what caused a lot of the kind of push to get rid of the pigs. Lots of theorists have talked about how people have used animals as markers of human difference. So different groups of people might raise or eat different animals, and that sets them apart. And they might even be used as tools to produce that difference. So if people are poor and they're eating something because it's cheaper, that's a way for uh, there to be a division that's social um, that's not really necessarily tied um, to the animal. The animal's not causing it, but the animal's like a sign for that. So it's something that historians can study, and that's something that comes up in Catherine McNoor's book. Catherine mentions one more thing that animals produce, which is smell. This can also hinder people from wanting to be around them. I think a lot of it has to do with the sanitation movement of the mid-19th century and um, issues with miasmas, um, fears of the smells that these animals were creating. Um, Pre-germ theory, people believed that bad smells, especially um, vegetable matter decomposing or animal matter decomposing, really cause disease. And so there was the, um, when cholera epidemics hit New York or other cities, a lot of blame was placed on the smelly animals or their manure. And, you know, even if you jump to the end of the 19th century, there's a, it seems counterintuitive to us today, but like the idea that horses could be replaced with cars was almost like a revolution um, in pollution. Like it was just like pollution would be eradicated because there's not going to be all this manure in the streets anymore. And so if there's not manure, then the city is going to be a lot healthier, even though we know that like car exhaust is so much worse than horses. Um, at that time, the, the waste was so um, serious to the, the city management and to respiratory health and all this other stuff that people um, were really looking forward to getting, uh, getting rid of the smells of animals. Maybe some of you had had this experience in the city. Sometimes I would smell the overriding smell of chickens walking by a live poultry place in Bushwick, Brooklyn, or even going to the petting zoo. The smell of animals. But yet, some of us still want to raise them in close proximity. Some of us want that experience. We speak to Heidi Wolliver because she did raise animals in the city, and we wanted to explore why. But first, we should talk about what animals she did raise at Queens County Farm Museum. Can you just kind of go through the different animals that you have here? Sure. And like so, maybe how many, yeah. give or take a little We have 18 large animals. Um, we have two steer, then we have eight goats, and then we have two alpacas. They came to us from John Bowne High School, which is an ag high school here in Queens. And then we have, right now we have six sheep, and then... Beyond that, we just have two piglets that we got last week. We just raised them for the season. And then... Wait, so what do you mean by raise them for the season? And then... So pigs, the way pigs grow, um, they grow really, really fast. Yeah. And when they reach about, like, 300 pounds at the most, that will be, like, the most. Um, you're, if you're not going to breed them, then you're probably not going to keep them. Um so we sell them back to the farm that we got them from. Oh, because okay. we can't, you know, do many yeah meat yeah. production here. Um, but yeah, pigs go from um, pigs go to three hundred pounds within like seven eight months. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, so they're those really are fast. Truly yeah. educational. They're just for. Yeah, they're truly yeah. educational. Yeah. 
So we asked Heidi why they have animals at Queens County Farm Museum. Granted, it's a farm, but they can't really do meat production. Maybe they're getting some textiles from the sheep. But what is the larger purpose? We have, you know, literally hundreds of school kids going through here all the time. So the fact that, you know, we do have these animals, that's a major draw for the the schools and the teachers to come bring their kids. So um, it's not for nothing that we have. I got to say the goats are the best for that. They are so good with people. Like, so they're lively or? And they'll just sit there and let you pet them. I mean, they do get sometimes get fed um, hay. There was one day I was working out here and there was this woman, she rolled up in a wheelchair and she must have sat there for two hours with this goat. And like, I was just like, I could not believe both of their patients. They just had such a like gentle time mm. and the goat was just stood there with her. Yeah. And I was like, this is awesome. You know, this is, that's the beauty of goats. You know, they may not produce anything like tangible, but they give people like a real, like they are, they let them touch, you know, they let people touch them, which the sheep don't do. The alpacas don't really do. So, yeah, it's, um... But that's interesting, because that's a whole other thing of, like, especially farming in an urban area, like, because I teach, too, a lot of my students are just, like, uh, they think of it as a therapy. Like, they, they're like, I can't wait to go out in the garden just because yeah. the city could be so stressful. And it's interesting, the idea of having farm animals also, because a lot of times people just think about, like, greenery or being in a garden or whatever. Yeah, touching the dirt. But yeah. the whole thing of, like, a lot of times it'll be, like, pet therapy or something, but why couldn't it be, like, farm animal yeah. therapy? Yeah. And also this just unusual thing that people aren't used to. That's the part of it being a public farm that I love, yeah. you know? But yeah, I mean, when kids came to Edgemere Farm, where I worked in the Rockaways, they loved the chickens. I mean, they loved the animals. Like, they connect more, I think, to the animals. Maybe adults are more like, I want to get my hands in the dirt. And kids want to get their hands in the dirt, too. But there's something about animals that really um, appeals to them even more. So you're kind of moving forward with, like, the educational thing, where it's like you're doing a lot of educational stuff here with the animals and then you're actually going to teach it yeah I mean for me I'm excited to teach it because I used to be a high school teacher I like teaching I like um you know making find figuring out ways to make it interesting mm-hmm. and uh I think I mean the, probably the natural interest is there I think the students self-select to take the class but um It's something like that I never explored until I was like in my 30s, you know, and I kind of wish I'd had like some idea that this is what I wanted to do earlier. I mean, we're all on our own path and like I'm perfectly happy with the path that I've been on. But I actually where I went to university, like we had like an ag school there and I never even knew like a single person in the ag school, like no overlap whatsoever. Like it never even like occurred to me that it could be something I would do, you know. Which brings about the question, how did Heidi actually get into raising farm animals? I never worked with animals um, until I farmed, really. Yeah. So I had dogs and stuff, but um, yeah, I always loved animals. I don't know. I just, I, I wasn't really fulfilling my potential when I was younger, I guess. Like, like I kind of thought like I would love to work with animals, but then I just, you know, yeah. What, I couldn't really think of how except to be a vet, and that just seemed like too sciency for me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, then when I started to think about farming, 
so I was a high school teacher and I um, was kind of thinking like that wasn't what I wanted to do for the next 30 years um, after about five years in. And uh, so, yeah, I went to a farming conference with my aunt. I just wanted to visit my aunt. She's like, let's go to this farming conference. And so I went to this like session called like exploring the small farm dream. <laughs> yeah. And it was like one of the. The, the guy was like, these are ways people are making money or, you know, making a living in small farming. And one of the ways was he was like sheep and goat dairy. I think he did, maybe he said goat dairy. Um, and then so I just started like learning all about goats, dairying with goats. It's yeah. like a side thing. Heidi started farming animals about 13 or 14 years ago in Portland, Maine. I did a farmer's market one summer next to this Icelandic sheep. Um, person farmer and uh, she just looked she was like you got fiber you got lamb you got milk you know if you want it because um, you can milk Icelandic so we decided to get Icelandic sheep and we just started going down that road and um, I went and farmed upstate um, for a year ran like 180 head um, Icelandic sheep farm and then um, and also had pigs and chickens there and then I started doing herbs too, like herbal medicine. And then I was just lonely. It was like Greene County, like middle of nowhere. Yeah. So I decided to come down to New York and just see like if I could do urban farming. It's like, I, you know, I just feel so lucky to be able to work with livestock in New York City. We'll delve into why Heidi was truly lucky to be able to raise large farm animals in this city with Catherine McNor. She explains how these large animals got pushed out of the city through zoning. In the middle of the 19th century, it's, you know, it's pre-planning law, but there is sort of proto-planning going on in terms of just the nuisance industries, the slaughterhouses, the piggeries or pig farms. They are, they're all getting pushed to the edges of the city. Um, and so it's, it's almost, it's not a very coordinated effort like planning law is in the turn of the 20th century, but it's a case-by-case um, -case pushing of these industries. And so, yeah, I think it really does have a lot to do with planning a city and figuring out what uses are appropriate in what places. I think zoning has a lot to do with um, animals. But Queens County Farm Museum is different. It's on the outskirts of Queens, and it also doesn't raise animals for meat production. In conversation with Heidi Willover, she'll explain a little bit. I wonder if this has a different legal status as a farm because it's a historical farm, right? I mean, it's something about that was where they found the wiggle room in New York City. All of these animals are illegal. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but then you see them at like the Prospect Park Zoo. Yep. You see sheep and goats there. Oh, huh. You, I never thought of that. I took my nephews there. Like you can feed them there. Yeah. So they're all just grandfathered in and some yeah. exemption. Yeah. Way. There's some kind of like little wiggle room. But like if I wanted to have like two dairy goats in my backyard, like no. So it seems like institutions, farms that have museum status or zoos have this little wiggle room to raise hooved animals, whereas the everyday New York City resident may not. As I mentioned earlier in the episode, we actually did get to catch up with Heidi to see where she's at now. Our interview was from 2019, and we wanted to see if she's still raising animals and if she's even still in the city. Well, um, I moved up to Esperance, New York, which is about 40 minutes west of Albany, um, right as the pandemic was starting or picking up fuel um, at the end of March two years ago. So just about two years ago. 
and uh, 2020. And um, I work at a farm called World's End. Um, I am the livestock manager there. And um, I also help with um, all the crops that are grown and flowers as well. Um, and we, I'm mainly focused on sheep and Icelandic sheep. And um, we raise meat birds um, in the summer and um, laying hens. And then we also have livestock guardian dogs. Wow, that sounds amazing. So why, why did you um, transition to like a rural area or, uh, or upstate again? What kind of led you in that direction? Um, well, for one thing, it was a heck of a commute to get from Rockaway out to Queens County Farm Museum. Um, it was like an hour through, you know, pretty congested uh, streets of Queens and Nassau County. And um, I... I was just, I had been farming in New York for six years and I was just ready to, um, you know, kind of expand onto more land, um, do more of what, you know, I, I really wanted to do with raising sheep, which is intensive rotational grazing and you need acreage to do that. Um, and this farm is, um, was, started by friends of mine and I've been their sheep mentor ever since they got sheep, um, in 2013. Um, so I've been kind of, um, farm sitting and stuff for them over the years. They've mainly been a flower farm and a teaching farm. Um, so when I had the opportunity to go and work there, I jumped on it. That's great. That sounds, that sounds amazing. Um, and have you, have you found that, um, because in the in the story that we're kind of doing a lot, like like we're interviewing a lot of folks who are doing urban agriculture, do you find that um, um, just, for example, like in your story, you were in kind of a rural area and then you moved to the city and practice urban agriculture and then you've kind of moved back to this rural area. Do you find that like kind of common or like from your, cause you've been doing this for years now and especially like raising animals and things like that. Um, yeah. What, what do you, have you found that kind of common or do you think it, it just depends on the person and you know, that kind of thing? I think a lot of people who have farmed in New York city, um, eventually they just, um, want to have more land and have more just, um, you know, kind of like natural soils and more of just like being in an ecosystem that is, you know, working together on your farm. Um, I was just mentioning that I have some friends who moved up from the Bronx and have been farming near us um, called the Blackyard Farm. And, you know, they were all Bronx farmers and they all moved up. So anecdotally, you know, I, ha I know a lot of people who have moved upstate. Um, you know, it's sort of a two-way street though. I mean, you know, some people move to the city, but I think it's for the amount of um, opportunities that are upstate, you know, it's just, it's so vast compared to what you can really um, do as far as like farming as a career in the city. Yeah. And especially um, raising animals. And, and we were kind of talking about that a little bit about the, um, some of the issues of raising animals in New York City, especially hooved animals. Because, you know, for residents, it's illegal. You have to have this certain kind of like, you know, certain permit or be, be grandfathered in or something like that. So 
Uh, yeah. And of course, if your passion is like sheep or, you know, other kind of hooved animals, then it might be a little bit trickier. Um, I'm also wondering if, if like the pandemic has definitely pushed a lot more folks who used to live um, in the city to these, like to upstate New York and, and that type of thing. Or, um, and if, you know, maybe that was like some folks like final push of, of like, okay, maybe we're done with the city for now and we yeah. can try out this farming thing or, um, yeah. yeah. I think, um, first of all, to have hoofed animals in the city, you basically need a political connection. <laughs> That's the only way it happens. Um, yeah, I think a lot of people have moved upstate, um, you know, um, Maybe they bought a little bit of land and they're interested in getting into sheep. I've had some people um, contact me um, about maybe doing a starter flock. I'm probably going to start teaching um, about raising Icelandic sheep and intensive rotational grazing um, to people that might want to buy a starter flock from us. So, yeah, I mean, I definitely I had um, some customers that bought breeding stock from me a couple of years ago. And they were mostly Manhattan based, but they had moved up um, in the pandemic and um, they, yeah, they started raising sheep, um, you know, at their, um, at their upstate place and they had a bunch of kids and um, it was just, you know, it's, it's a neat opportunity for people to kind of like switch gears and, you know, have a totally different experience, um, you know, if they've just been urban up till now. So it's actually interesting that the one farmer that we interviewed who raised livestock actually moved upstate. And it really makes you ask the question, um, how possible is it to raise animals in the city? And maybe, you know, we are definitely focusing on the farm animals that are legal, which are hooved animals. And in another episode, we will talk about um, animals that people can raise in the city, such as chickens. Um, but in the interim, Wythe and I are just going to discuss these interviews in general and just kind of talk about our takeaways. Support for this episode comes from Team Pennsylvania, hosting the Pennsylvania Hemp Summit with two events in 2022 that offer a place for farmers, professionals, investors, and policymakers to learn and connect while providing an occasion to network and grow the businesses that comprise the region's hemp industry. The Pennsylvania Hemp Summit aims to increase the Commonwealth's shared knowledge and resources in order to inspire innovative investments and to form transformative partnerships in the hemp industry. Join us for our upcoming trade show, reception, and investor pitch competition in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on April 26th to 27th, and again on November 8th and 9th for educational sessions, a trade show, and reception. Register to attend or get involved by exhibiting or sponsoring. Details at pahempsummit.com. So I guess we should start off uh, just kind of discussing the history of raising animals in New York City. And Catherine McNora wrote a great book about it called Taming Manhattan. Um, and in us inter- interviewing her, she kind of explains it a little bit. Yeah, that Taming Manhattan is an awesome book. Uh, there's a few good food history books out there, and that's one that I always recommend. It's on my short list um, in terms of especially the history of New York. I just think it's short and fun and covers a lot of really interesting stuff like Swill Milk and Central Park. 
and for our purposes, it was really useful to talk to someone who's thought a lot about this exact question. What did people used to grow in the city in terms of animals, and how did that change? Yeah, so um, she focuses a lot on pigs, um, specifically pigs in, in New York City, and also what populations raise those pigs. Um, so it seems like she, she mentions mostly people that come from like a lower economic status are the ones who need to be a little bit more self-sustaining. So that's why they had these pigs. Yeah. And it makes total sense that the pigs were the first target of sort of the cleanup of New York City and the idea that the elites wanted to sort of sanitize their city um, because they couldn't get rid of horses because of transport and work but they could move the piggeries out of the city so you didn't have literally wild hogs roaming around and also just this animal that was associated with kind of gross stuff. Um, yeah, and, and, like, and making it illegal for that certain economic class to have pigs. So actually taking away that food source from them. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so it's also like putting down the law, the rules of you know, what kind of animals you can have in an urban environment. Yeah. It's definitely also part of that transition to a very market driven society where you buy stuff and the stuff is brought into the city for the most part um, in terms of food. And there's a good book called Urban Appetites by Cindy Lobel. That's like a a really good history that I I woefully should have read way before I'm just reading now um, that covers a lot of this. And I think overlaps nicely with some of the food production and sort of sanitary story that Catherine McNoor explores because mm-hmm. it sort of says like, yeah, there is a point at which um, people had to get used to buying food in markets in a certain way, as opposed to being farmers in Manhattan because Manhattan stopped having farms increasingly, you know, going north from 14th yeah. over the 18th century, uh, the 19th century. The, the gentry um, really wanted New York City to become more of a global kind of clean um, metropolitan area, right? And one of the ways to do it is to make it less rural, to get all of these animals out. So when they leave their beautiful townhouses, a pig doesn't run by <laughs> and literally like get mud all over them or pig poop or whatever. So they don't see like pigs fornicating in the street, which used to, they used to see all the time, or pigs like trampling old ladies or rooting up the sidewalk like like she explains that all these things used to happen and the gentry were just like we literally live in a farm like we need to clean this up this is supposed to be this global metropolitan um you know we want to be one of the major cities and how can we call ourselves an urban area if we still have all these rural animals running around I think um, it speaks to something we've talked about, which is this transition from um, everyone's kind of farming or knows about farming to this hard divide between urban, not farming, rural farming, and how urban agriculture never really goes away and complicates that narrative. But there is, there are these attempts to enforce these divisions. And definitely yeah. the rich people in Manhattan who were like, no, like, we're going to use the city for other purposes. We're going to have businesses and people living here. And that's how we make money. Farming has no place in Manhattan. Yeah. And even it's funny because it's not that long ago that these yeah. farms weren't actually that far. They were still in Brooklyn. They were still in Queens. They were still in New Jersey. And of course, again, there are some urban farms today. But it's funny to think how rapidly um, that so that whole approach, Manhattanism, mm-hmm. um, you know, jumped from literally Manhattan to like all the five boroughs are pretty covered in concrete. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Fast. And, and also the idea of like sanitation. Yeah. Right. So getting these animals out, you are going to make the streets more sanitary. 
Um, and also maybe around the same time with science and germs. And she talks a lot about how, um, I forget what the word is called, but like when you smell something, you associate that with health or sickness. Yeah. Well, there's miasma. Miasma, that that's what she was talking about. Pretty much clouds of bad stuff were around. And if you got rid of the bad smell, you get rid of the bad stuff. And it's made fun of a lot, like in cartoons today. But miasma theory makes so much sense. If you think about it, if there's rotting stuff, it smells bad. It's rotting in part because of like microbes that you don't want to eat and they will make you sick. So it actually is a very, very good theory if you don't have the theory of microbes. If you don't know what germs are, you can only go by your senses, by does it look off, you know, like bread mold, right? Does it does it smell off like a rotting meat that's left out? Mm-hmm. Um, if it does, you probably shouldn't eat it and you should probably like clean it up. So, I mean, it's, it's funny to think like how um, I think we sometimes conflate like uh, – like the fact that they didn't have microbiology in the early 19th century with kind of being super um, strict or unscientific. Um, but in but in fact, like it, it does make sense. You don't want poop lying around. And that's yeah. kind of common sense. But of course, it was still very classed and, and also raced, right? It was like unevenly policed. And I think um, it's sort of not surprising, I guess, given today that that elites sort of you know, drove these laws and, and, and made the, the rules about, you know, who got to grow what food. Yeah. Um, or ra- yeah. Who got to raise what animals and that kind of thing. Um, and then it's also just kind of interesting, the idea of waste um, in an urban area compared to a rural area, like in a rur- rural area, it seems like it's so much easier to not have necessarily a concept of waste because that poop could be turned into um, manure or I mean that poop is manure which could also be a fertilizer right yeah. whereas when you're in an urban area what are you going to do with all this waste it's going to just be gross on the street or to, or like sit there or fester or whatever so I think that's also another kind of aspect which I don't know if she necessarily talked about it that much but um, just the the concept of waste and the animals that leave this yeah. waste and what are you going to do with it? Well, she's a chapter on waste in the book. Um, and yeah, it was a whole economy where you had to move waste and he included human waste, night soil, and it was manure and it was yeah. really valuable. But yeah. that changes um, over, you know, as big money is, yeah. is coming to the city and industrializing it and the farms move out, then it changes. It sort of screws up that whole um, cycle and it's never we don't really ever go back to it. And now, mm-hmm. again, today, a lot of scientists are saying like, well, maybe, you know, we should rethink you know, we have a lot of different kinds of waste, human waste and, and animal waste from animal agriculture. And like, yeah, it is um, something it's a resource that we could do stuff with as opposed to just the worst possible option, which is what we do now, largely, which is leave it in kind of big lagoons that then get really gross. And that's bad and then a huge the storm comes and it yeah. gets into all the rivers and, you know, yeah. Turns into methane. Um, yeah. Um, but the other thing is that the pigs used to be used for waste, for sanitation. Right. So the pigs used to eat the garbage. And then there was also this other um, sense of like, do you really want to eat this pig meat, this pork? Because what are they feeding on in an urban area? They're feeding on garbage, mm. right? No, not necessarily all of them, but then there was also the idea of like, how good is this meat actually? Right. And the gentry probably would not eat that, right? And that goes to the same thing with um, the cows or the dairies like around Central Park. And when there was a whole issue with um, with the milk, what what was the milk called again? It's the swill milk. Swill milk. So the, the brewers would have um, mash that's like leftover grains um, that weren't very nutritious and to get rid of it they'd feed it to the cows and also to then not have to buy hay to feed the cows 
And the problem is it's not nutritious. So the cows would get skinny and sickly and the milk would actually be blue and kind of this weird thin texture. And so to fortify it, they started adding like plaster of Paris, mm-hmm. like cheap, like ground up rocks that mm-hmm. made like limestone stuff that made it look white. Mm-hmm. And then they were basically so selling gorgeous. milk that was like, didn't taste very good, but it looked white and it had the right texture, but it actually had like very few nutrients. And so it was making kids really sick. Well, it had plaster of Paris <laughs> in it. Like that, like there were, I think there was a lot of infant mortalities because of that. Not just sick, but yeah. like babies yeah. were dying because it was probably the same time when they were starting to go to cow's milk for infants where it wasn't like breastfeeding maybe wasn't at, like it was probably still used a lot, but then it started getting, you know, women started using cow's milk more, yeah. but it was actually this plaster of Paris milk and that goes to another question of just like what can you actually feed these animals how much space do they have and was it almost like in an urban area like when you had these piggeries or when you had these dairies um was it just really horrible conditions for those animals yeah i mean this um i was talking about this the other night the food scholar and um Actually, so Melanie Dupuis' book, Nature's Perfect Food, covers all the milk stuff in New York really, really well. It's a really mm-hmm. well-written short book that I recommend. But um, yeah, I mean, essentially, it, originally, the investigative journalists, like in the middle of the 1800s, let's say, maybe even a little before that, were sort of pointing this stuff out. And um, basically, you know, the sort of Tammany Hall system that regulated food, regulated in quotation marks, because compared to today, it was a little bit different. But they were sort of guilds, unions of um, the the butchers and the dairymen, and they sort of were allowed to regulate themselves. And so they did respond. They made um, the conditions a little bit better by giving more room to the cows, but they didn't totally get rid of kind of the problem of like feeding cows bad stuff that cows shouldn't eat and therefore humans shouldn't drink the milk from. Uh, And it lasted until like the 1890s. Like I think Swill milk is one of the worst scandals because it was so linked to like specifically urban New York City corruption. It wasn't just like, oh, you shouldn't feed cows like bad stuff. It was also like you should have the power to kind of regulate your food system so that, yeah, like babies don't die. Like that's like and I think that is part of the that next generation of um, like Upton Sinclair and the jungle, Mm -hmm. which is about Chicago. But it's Mm -hmm. it's still it's this response to the perception that by the end of the um, 1800s, people are like, look, America's pretty rich and we have all these people in these big cities. We have all this food and we can now move it around with rail. Mm -hmm. But, you know, why should we get sick? Like, we should be able to know Mm -hmm. that the food isn't going to kill you. Um, Mm -hmm. And and the government should be empowered to do that. So that's Mm -hmm. kind of an interesting story. So moving to to how it's illegal or it's illegal to have hooved animals in New York City, right? Yeah. But we did interview Heidi Wolliver, who um, actually raises animals or does animal husbandry at the um, Queens County Farm. And so they are actually still allowed to have hooved animals. There's reasons why you don't, you still don't see like, like cows or pigs kind of running around New York City or even goats. Like we're starting to see that a little bit with the parks department. Maybe they'll bring some goats in to clean some of the shrubbery or stuff like that in the parks. Or maybe we will see some sheeps in like sheep in some fields. Um, I would you bring a goat to the NYU urban farm lab? No way. No way. Because it would eat everything? It would eat everything. If I was clearing lands, then yeah, sure. If I was, so this is the thing. Maybe if I was doing like a, a food forest, um, maybe I'd bring a goat in. 
right. to clear some of the shrubs underneath or something like that, right? If there was a lot of things kind of going on and if I wanted to prep that kind of woodland. Um, or maybe I'd even want to bring pigs in if I was doing a yeah. food forest. And they eat different stuff. I was reading this book, um, Restoration Agriculture by Mark Shepard, and he goes through how every animal sort of has this role, although he agrees that goats sort of eat too much, so they're not actually useful. Yeah. But sheep, cows, pigs, and chickens each eat different plants and they can help actually a forest be healthier and mm-hmm. it doesn't kill all the plants if you yeah. if you do it at the right scale. Um, well, and Heidi you, yeah. was, oh, sorry. No, I, go ahead. I was just going to say that makes me think Heidi also was talking about silvopasture um, yes. and her, her work with with ruminants, right? With sheep. Yeah, so, so Heidi's story is kind of interesting because it's like, how do you find somebody who knows how to do animal husbandry in an urban area. Mm. And and her story is, what she explains is that um, she actually came from a rural area and that's how she learned how to do animal husbandry. And I think something happened where her and her partner split or something and she got kind of lonely and she wanted to be more in an urban area. And she got the job at Queens County Farm um, where they're raising, um, they're definitely raising sheep. They're raising pigs they're raising chickens they're raising llamas are they they also have steer do yeah, they, have they have steer cows yeah right but anyways she Thanks does have they do have hoofed animals there and we did ask her how do you guys have hoofed animals um well first off queens county farm is the oldest farm in new york city it's also on the outskirts it's very much in like um an outer borough but like the outer part of queens um it's kind of by city field um and they have a lot of land there. Um, so they kind of have this land that they could actually, um, you know, have a decent amount of animals there. But also it's used more. It's not used for meat at all. We kind of talked to her about that. Yeah. Um, like she would get so much heat from so many different people if they decided to um, to actually slaughter the animals and the whole thing was she didn't really want to it seemed like right yeah. or not that she didn't want to but but it, but it raises this point which you know food studies scholars have brought up a lot which is that over time um populations as they get sort of denser and more market driven and, and there's a bigger richer you know unequal upper class they move animal slaughter away mm-hmm. and that's like very um de- de- you know uh intentional like Mm -hmm. the idea that you know basically people agree with the idea that killing animals is gross and it's not something you want to see it's not something you necessarily want to do even if you want to eat meat and so people would seem happy to live with that contradiction most people where they eat meat and they like eating meat but they don't want to see the slaughter and so i think it, it, it is interesting um that in today's world we really don't see it much and we associate it with a few exceptions like kosher or halal um, but also, even with even if they were slaughtering at Queens County Farm, it is just sort of this rarity. It's really old and it's way out there and it's just one farm. So I, I don't know that it would change the sort of landscape of urban life where you can go get meat and you don't see any suffering animals, mm-hmm. um, even if they did it way out there. Um, so I think it's interesting that like it almost um, it, even if they did everything that a quote unquote normal farm does, whatever that means mm-hmm. there it would still kind of preserve this idea that it's just nostalgic. You know, it's this museum. It's yeah, the Queens it's County a museum. museum. Exactly. Farm. Yeah. Yeah. It's educational and it's agricultural tourism in a way. Right. 
right? So um, that kind of, even though they are still a production farm, like they have a CSA, they have a farm stand, they probably have eggs from the chickens, um, and they do the whole sheep shearing fest. So they have textiles, get a lot of textiles from the animals. But um, but when it comes to meat, it's a different, you know. And she also just talks about her relationship with these animals. Yeah. And how she feels somewhat close to them or, you know, she maybe she wouldn't even do it if she could. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I do, there were goats because now I'm picturing I was thinking a lot about our journey with the alpacas to get their um, nails clipped. <laughs> but there were I remember the goats and the sheep and the, the goats kind of stack themselves. Into, you know, they're always standing on. Stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's like a pyramid of goats. Yeah. Yeah. And it's I don't know. There's just something interesting about um, you can see an animal from the distance or hear about it. But it's different when you're leading one around or standing next to it, touching its hair. And yeah, if you do that day in, day out. Um, I don't know. It's it's very interesting that she was very focused on sheep, which are grown, yeah, not for meat. It's like they're pretty big. I mean, they're, they're not. I mean, huge, you can but, grow sheep for meat. Yeah, yeah but it's just but, not economic, and it's yeah. it's interesting that she would have a hundred or more sheep and not, you know, it's not really for food. Um, and you're keeping them alive. You want them to just keep growing hair. It's, it's yeah. Like a, it's kind of bonkers to think that that way. I don't know. We'll definitely share our bonkers trip to Queens County Farm Museum. Um, on the website and kind of show you these pictures of, um, we might have some pictures of the stacked goats and um, our trip to get the alpacas nails trimmed and all these other things. Um, But we just want to thank you for joining us in kind of exploring, yeah, raising animals in the city. And, And again, this episode, we did focus on animals that are mostly illegal and um, kind of the the issues in raising these larger animals in an urban area, but still how it's done. Um, and yeah, stay tuned for our chickens episode. Thanks. Thanks to our brilliant guests. Fields theme music is by Sam Tyndall. Our amazing producing engineer at Heritage Radio is Liam Werner. Fields is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio and at Fields Podcast. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.